Well, welcome back to Talking Acoustics. Uh, it's been a bit of a break. Um, I've uh, been a little bit busy over the last few years. Uh, when I did an MBA, I stepped onto a board. Um, I stepped on, served a term on the executive of the AAAC, uh, and there was this little uh, COVID thing that happened, um, which was pretty all-consuming um, whilst trying to run a, a business and a team. Um, so Talking Acoustics took a bit of a back seat. Um, but we're back um, and we have very graciously received a grant, uh, the Richard Booker Education Grant from the Australian Acoustical Society, um, which has given us a bit of funding um, to get this podcast back on track. Um, and I'm really excited about what's uh, coming up. We've got a couple of episodes already recorded um, and a few more uh, lined up. So, uh, yeah, really uh, excited to get back into it. Anyway, uh, the first one that we're going to have today is with James McIntosh. Uh, so I'm with James McIntosh from James McIntosh Acoustics, um, who is, uh, until recently, with uh, spent about 15-odd years with... Uh, 13 years with uh, various Victorian uh, road uh, government entities dealing with noise. So um, how do you explain to someone at a barbecue what your job is, what you do? Well, what I used to say is that I'm the noise guy or I'm the one who provides advice on noise walls or I'm the one who works out where noise walls should be or at least works out the rules about where they should be and that quite often starts a conversation about um, someone's experience of noise at their place or um, people shouldn't complain about noise if they choose to live near a noisy road or something like that but you know people have got an opinion on it heated yeah. discussion yeah, it can be yeah. I, 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 yeah I remember doing a job in the uh, it was on a rail corridor freight rail corridor and we'd go and measure and the residents would come out and one person would come out and say oh great finally they're gonna build a something to do something barrier about the noise and then you go great and the next person from the the next door house would come out and go you're gonna put a barrier block my view oh, this is what I moved here for yeah. yeah we know that some people actually do appreciate the traffic or the traffic noise and there's quite a there's a few retired truck drivers who live next to freeways and I sort of imagine them sitting out on their back deck with a beer watching them listening to the trucks go past and um, we have a place in Melbourne where there's a freeway runs past an airport and we couldn't build a noise wall there because the people across the road chose to live across the road from an airport because they like watching the aeroplanes yeah, so yeah. Um, you can't please everybody and people have got very you know, conflicting ideas of what they want or what is good. So, yeah. Yeah, my, my uh, eight-year-old son uh, would love to live somewhere right next to the rail line where he can watch all the trains go past. <laughs> and he, would, he certainly would not complain about the noise. Um, but how did, you, how did you get into this business? Because you did uh, mechanical engineering at uni and then you went to work for General Motors Holden? Yeah, I got into noise and vibration through the auto industry. Um, I've always been fascinated by vibration. 
um, the way things shake and their modes. Um, I was particularly impressed with old video of the Tacoma Narrows oh, bridge yeah. collapsing. That was 1940. Um, interesting thing about that was that um, the causes of that were understood before the bridge was ever designed. The, the aeronautical industry had mastered designing aeroplane wings with flutter in mind and the civil engineers didn't know about that or it got um, the architects got carried away with making it slender but you know that that was a really interesting thing and that sort of thing fascinated me um, I had a mate who worked for General Motors Holdens in the body design area which I thought was pretty boring but he told me all about it and in working at Holden and he told me there was a group there called the Noise and Vibration Group and he was really derogatory but they're all PhDs <laughs> and nerds and doing this weird stuff with vibration and, and the more he talked about it the more I thought that sounds like me but except I don't have a PhD and they'd never hire me for something like that and about a month later I applied for a job in the body group where he was and I didn't get the job but the recruiting agent said, well, actually, there's also a job in the noise and vibration group. Do you think you'd be interested in that? And I had to say, well, actually, I'd be a lot more interested. And another interview when I was in, and honestly, I think it was the best job I ever had. It was like, why do they pay me to do this stuff? It was tinkering with cars and figuring out where the noises were coming from, root cause analysis, lots of experimental work, um, problem solving, and you know, some of the time I'd be in the laboratory in Melbourne, some of the times I'd be in the proving ground at Lang Lang, which is about 100 kilometres from Melbourne, among the gum trees, and you know, it was just the best thing. So that was, that was great. And then, fate has carried me from there to other jobs in Holden. I was designing interior trim and sound insulation package after that, which was you know, not quite so good. And then I um, ended up at the, um, the part that makes the loudest noise. I ran the crash test laboratory for a while and I was in the business of making loud bangs with cars. <laughs> and then eventually when they contracted, I took the opportunity to leave and um, Vic Roads, which is the road administration agency of government in Victoria, or at least was at that time, advertised a job for a traffic noise engineer and I thought, well, I know about noise, I know about vehicles, um, that sounds like it's got my name on it and mm. I applied and I got the job and then there have been a few restructurings since then and um, about a week ago I took the opportunity to finish up and I'm now um, a free man and doing a little bit of consulting so that's basically my work history. So, sounds like you've uh, you've walked through the uh, the door when they've been cracked open and just followed your nose through some of it. Doesn't, doesn't sound like you uh, sat down and planned out the, the next 20 years and decided you'd go through these yeah. different areas? Yeah, it was not particularly strategic. Um, it was seeing opportunities and taking them and, you know, that's, that's like one way of life. Other people would 
have a more of a formal career plan, but yeah, you know, to my mind, that's just doesn't risks disappointment. Doesn't sound as interesting, does it? No. <laughs> um, so you got into um, uh, policy analysis and development with with um, the various sort of Vic Roads and, yeah. and their offshoots. Yeah. Um, what does what does that involve in terms of like making a policy? And how do you determine what's an appropriate balance between you know the the needs of various stakeholders and the community and the need for infrastructure and and that sort of thing. Well, this is a a really difficult thing, and it's it's um, you know, engineering that you know we we can understand. You do the maths, you get the answer. Um, with government policy, it's more subtle and it's more ambiguous. Um, so we have a, a basically an intractable problem that we want a, a transport system that we can move people and goods with, but we don't want people to be affected by noise. And unless we put the transport system underground or we shut it down at night, we're not gonna make the noise go away. Mm. So all we can do is come up with a reasonable sort of compromise. Uh, we will never please everybody. Um, we would like to please more rather than fewer. And at the end of the day, it's, a, it's not a decision for an engineer or a public servant what sort of policy to have about noise. It's, it's the job of the elected government. Um, one sort of clear example of how this has been thought about is the European Noise Directive, where the European Parliament has decided that all the governments, all the European member nations need to map their noise and publish their noise. They don't need to have any particular noise limit imposed by the European Parliament. It's just, you're a member state with an elected government, the elected government can decide what it wants. And then they have to make a decision, is it worth spending public money on noise mitigation or on compromising the effectiveness of the transport system? Um, where do they make their political decisions? And all that I as a policy analyst can do is I can think about stuff, I can come up with ideas, I can analyse problems, I can come up with alternatives, I can say what I think the risks are, but it's not for me to decide. Mm. And it's actually quite challenging in the noise space because I mean what we do is based on logarithms and 99% mm. of the population switched their brains off in maths <laughs> in school when they started logarithms you know and it's complicated and there's a there's a limit to how much you can abstract that away um, so you now I might have to write some advice that will go to you know, the senior executives in the department who will then have to explain it to somebody else, to a minister's advisor, who will then have to explain it to a minister. And, you know, you can see, you can see a bit of Chinese whispers yeah, going on yeah, here, yeah. can't you? I mean, so. it's, it sounds a bit like the, the client-consultant relationship in that you're, you're, you're preparing advice that says, you know, this is, this is 
how we understand the problem and this is what we think are the pros and cons of different options and solutions and 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 we're now equipping you to make an informed decision on on what you believe is appropriate it's um it's an interesting perspective i hadn't sort of appreciated that um you know, uh, uh, the the public service acting as a client to the government of the day. It's um, interesting. Um, looking at policy then, what are the characteristics um, that present in good policy versus bad policy? Um, it needs to be credible and have a degree of transparency and a degree of... needs to be defendable. Yeah. And... It needs to be equitable. Um, one of the great problems we have with managing transport noise is we'll go and build a noise wall in some place and someone down the road says, I want one at my place too. I, I can't believe that it's any noisier at their place than at my place. You know, where's my noise wall? And even just a noise wall has two ends. You know, it, yeah. it's got to stop somewhere. Yeah. Um, the... Now, to my mind, I want to be able to know that there is a rationale for a decision. Um, that runs slightly differently from a elected government's view that might be um, that a noise wall would be a very good thing in a particular place for a particular reason that is not acoustical yep. or not strictly acoustical. Yep. Um, another thing we do is truck curfews. There are a number of places in Melbourne where trucks are not allowed to operate at night. Yeah, right. And, you know, the, this is largely been due to um, local residents campaigning to get trucks off the road at night. Not everybody even comprehends that it's a noise issue, but that's what it is. It's helping people sleep at night. Mm. And it's a particularly problematic thing because if you take the trucks off one road at night, you know, the trucks don't Disappear. stay home for the night, <laughs> they go somewhere else. And yeah. it doesn't necessarily fix a problem, it might move it to somewhere that's less sensitive, but ultimately it's, it's shifting a problem rather than removing it. Have you seen many changes in, um, in transport policy and noise policy over the last, you know, over the sort of 13 year or plus period I guess you've been aware of the in in the mix in that area is it is it changing a lot there's been remarkably little change hmm. um, in Victoria we had a noise policy it wasn't a standalone policy it was one page out of the Vicroads manual of policy it was written in 1983 after that there was a um, draft standalone traffic noise policy was written in 1989 and there has been very little change since then. Um, we have a passenger rail noise policy that came into force in 2013 that is very narrowly focused and apart from that there's been very little change. We've had um, building standards for apartments have got noise requirements in 2016 but that's that's not a lot of change in Victoria mm. and uh, Western Australia has changed its policies in my time but that's about it. Mm. Uh, one of the particularly difficult things is 
equity and change and there's there's a reluctance to say we're going to have a new policy that's better because people will then say I live next to an old road it's not fair that the new roads quieter than the old road and yep. um, that has been something of a barrier to change mm. but ultimately you'll never improve if you don't actually make a change like that and accept that you've got to leave past behind yeah. and move forward and you know that's been a hard sell yeah do, do you think um, there's certainly in Australia there's some states that have um, quite a lot of um, policy and regulation around noise uh, and I'm thinking mostly about environmental noise and, and transport noise and then other states that have uh, much slimmer um, policy portfolio <laughs> um, around it do you uh, and there's a you know from a cult a consultants perspective I see there's a um, there's a lot more cost and hoops to jump through and and you know in those more regulated states um, but do you think the do you think the outcome in terms of the community and in terms of the environment impact um, do you think that um, additional sort of regulation is is a uh, is warranted given the you know the additional cost and complexity involved versus the you know is it, maybe it's, it's a question of balance I don't yeah. know. it's it's really hard to tell um, the classic example of this is um, building a bridge between Victoria and New South Wales <laughs> where there is a town on each side of the bridge each side of the Murray River and in Victoria we have a traffic noise policy that sets a relatively high level of noise but it's mandatory and we have a policy in New South Wales that has lower levels that are not mandatory and you then get a situation where uh, there's no, more noise mitigation on one side of the bridge than on the other and you know it it invites comment yeah. I guess you could say yeah. um, but you know we would say that Victoria's got probably the highest noise walls in Australia and that's because we have a policy that pretty much says the limit is the limit yeah and um, other states would say they don't want their noise walls to be hazardous to low-flying aircraft and um, they'll deal with noise some other way yeah I don't think there's a correct answer yeah yeah um, you've, you've I guess you've worked across um, policy and, and analysis and, and assessment um, you've worked through um, several different areas at Holden um, what are you most proud of in your career to date um, one thing I did early on was in the development of the first, well, the Holden utility that came out in the mid to late 1980s. And that was derived from a Commodore sedan, but a decision had been made that it was a work vehicle, so it didn't need the same level of <laughs> acoustical treatment. Yeah. And the early prototypes were just appallingly noisy on, on the inside I'm talking about and I was able to convince the management that we needed to fix that and and I did it in a slightly sneaky way um, 
if you in the prototypes if you ran the vehicle with the engine running at 3000 rpm which is pretty hard the measured noise level at the driver's ear was over 90 dBA Ooh. now that is this is no HS issue I was able to argue that that is an OHS issue that um, in those days the eight hour noise dose limit for OHS was 90 decibels it's 85 now and I spun an argument that said this is a work vehicle it should be OHS compliant and I won the argument I actually got an extra prototype built for me um, fixing that engine transmission problem was very easy engineering we'd actually fixed it in the sedan but we'd we'd left the fix off for the U but there were other things there was fuel pump noise that you could hear when if you were driving at 100 kilometers an hour normally you only hear that when you're idling so a bit of smart engineering went into fixing that and at the end of the day it was a vehicle that was not particularly quiet but it was was reasonable yeah and I guess in acoustics we're trying to come up with something that's reasonable and I, I think a reasonable solution is a success and, and makes a difference I mean, that example makes a difference in people's lives you know that I, I always think about acoustics and what we do and you know that hopefully we're, we're doing something that makes a difference to people and I think all owners of uh, late 1980s uh, Holden Utes have probably had a better better run at it because of that. I don't think they appreciate it because they never they, heard they the prototype. You need to play the noisy version for them. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. Um, what, what do you What do you think the future looks like in terms of um, acoustics? And I guess in, in the transport space, what do you think is going to change well, in the way that we... In environmental acoustics, I think that it's now seen as a health issue. Mm. And you know the the time was when people would say, if you live near a noisy road or a railway line, then you you chose that. That was your decision. Suck it up. And now that we know, you know, largely from European research, that noise is a serious health hazard. Mm. That. Ex high levels of noise exposure over a prolonged period increases risk of heart disease. Um, sleep is an essential for human life and if you have compromised sleep you have compromised health. Mm. Um, no one goes to an open for inspection at 4am on a weekday morning so they don't know how many trucks are going past in the night. Yeah. And that we're we're moving to a, a um, an awareness that noise that by protecting people from excessive levels of noise, we're actually protecting health, and that people yeah. have a right to a reasonably healthy environment. Mm. Now that you're um, you know, retired from your <laughs> previous role and you're off into your own uh, consultancy, what what does the future hold for you? What what do you still want to do in in acoustics? Um, look, part of me says I put my boots up and go and go bushwalking and go rock climbing and walk the dog and just take it easy. Um, I don't think I'm going to be able to sustain that. Um, 
I think there's there's still work to be done. Um, what I really like to see is have our traffic noise modelling in Australia modernised. Mm. Um, we're using the British Corton algorithm that was developed in 1975. In it, Wales. Yeah. <laughs> it was validated in Australia in 1983. Yep. In what is really quite simple road context compared to, to today. Mm. It was updated in 1988 mm. and so we haven't actually validated the 1988 version and we're still using it on the basis that it was validate that the first version was validated in 1983. Um, I may have got my years wrong. No, 83 is right. Yeah, right. That's the uh, um, and the the road environment has changed since then. Yeah. Um, in Corton, a heavy vehicle is designed as a vehicle is defined, sorry, as a vehicle with an unladen mass of more than fifteen hundred and twenty-five kilograms. Now that's about the mass of a Toyota Camry. And back in those days, we didn't have B doubles. Yeah. We got B doubles now. They they make more noise than a Camry. Um, <laughs> the Corton algorithm assumes that noise comes out half a metre above the road surface. Now we've got trucks with exhausts up three and a half metres up in the sky. Now New South Wales uses a sort of a modified Corton that seeks to deal with that. But in Victoria we don't use it because it wasn't validated in 1983. Um, and that when Corton was designed, it wasn't in... That was before the days of computers. Mm. Um, it comes in a book with big graphs, so you can yeah, do look, the... look-up charts, so you yeah. don't have to, you don't have to yeah. even get the slider all out. And, you know, we've got computers now. Um, why don't we have a sophisticated modern algorithm? Mm. Um, and the answer to the question is that as long as the traffic is not totally dominated by trucks, Corton overestimates the noise. And it's conservative, and we say, well, it's kind of good enough. But I think the time has come to say it's not kind of good enough anymore. And we need to have a... Um, go back over it. Um, part of the work's been done by Jeffrey Peng in a PhD project where he, he's done a lot of work on noise emissions from the vehicle fleet in Australia. Uh, but I think there's another step that needs to be done that would get us to a place where we can reasonably accurately model traffic noise and then make well-informed decisions. Mm. So two follow-up questions to that. One is um, th there are a number of uh, models created since 1973, um, you know, America, the Federal Highways models and there's, there's European models. I is there a, a model a, or a modelling um, standard that you think is, is the type that we should look to adopt? Um, look, I'm not a modelling expert. Um, I, I think it, it's fair to say that 
there's two stages to it. One is modeling the emissions of from the vehicles and the Australian fleet is unique in that respect and we should have emission levels Source for data. the Australian fleet. Yeah. And I think it would be reasonable to import that into a propagation model. Yeah. And that uh, might be Kenosis, it might be Nord. Mm. Um, I'd probably leave it to others to make that decision. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, I don't see any reason why sound propagates differently in Australia from um, the Northern Hemisphere, though. Um, we don't have snow on the ground much, so that might make a bit of difference. My other question of that is, is um, we have some of these Northern Hemisphere uh, models and, you know, there are regulators in Australia who are aware of those and, and um, have some idea about why they might be more accurate than, than Corton. Um, but there does seem to be a reluctance to uh, taking those, uh, perhaps because Corton's so easy to understand and so easy to sort of, you know, it, it gives it gives a pretty close answer. Um, do you think there's a a reluctance in the from the from the regulator type side to? changing you know if it's not broken do, do we need to fix it is that well I, I think there is to a degree and that there is there's more of a risk of over predicting noise to um, over constructing noise mitigation yeah. if you have noise walls that are too high yeah. no one's going to complain um, but then you're wasting money. Um, yeah, and, 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 and environmental impact too. Yeah, Every time yeah. you build a wall yeah. another metre high, you've yeah. got to put more concrete yeah. in it, you've got to um, service it and, you know. The other thing is that our roads are getting more complex in their design mm -hmm. and um, there is potential for Corton to underestimate noise where there are overhead structures because noise from a road can reflect off the underside of a bridge above it and in so doing bypass a noise wall yep and so that becomes a potential for someone to you know to get significantly higher noise levels mm. in their backyard than was modeled by Corton yep and you know with our bigger and more complicated freeway systems and flyovers and the like um, I think there's there's a risk there, and that there'll be all sorts of finger pointing when the when the measured noise level comes in over what was modelled. And yep. you know, was it the consultant? Well, the consultant will say they were told to, use, told Corton, to use Corton, yep. and they used the inputs they were given, and um, you know it could get acrimonious. Yeah. But it hasn't happened much, just mm. as much due to good luck as anything else. Um, Mm. Yeah, so. uh, the last thing is, um, do you have an advice? What advice would you give to someone who's looking to come into acoustics, who's interested in it, or, or, or maybe the better way to say that is, what advice would you give your twenty-year-old self that you? Well, I miss having not studied acoustics at university. Um, I studied 
vibration as part of mechanical engineering, but not sound. And you know, the acoustics isn't really taught at universities in Victoria. Mm. And um, I might have been better to go to university in Adelaide or Sydney um, to get that fundamental grounding. Now I learned acoustics on the job with some smart people around me. Um, but then I had to go back and read the textbooks to get the, um, you know, the theory that underpins it. And theory is important. You, know, yeah. you, can, you can use your experience and your observations to calibrate what theory teaches you, but without the theoretical foundation, you struggle a bit. So um, study acoustics and I think you have to be um, accept that there's a fair bit of maths in it um, it's a lot more mathematical than most fields of human endeavor and in fact we still do actually use the maths like an awful lot of people studied maths at university and um, after that when they got into the workforce they they did four sorts of maths they were plus minus times and how many yeah yeah um the in the acoustic world there there really is some maths um and you need to be able to accept that and to embrace it and also you need to understand that it's not a precise science that mm. um People expect, people think you can measure a meter and it will be exactly a meter. Yeah. So therefore you should be able to measure a decibel and it will be exactly a decibel. And it doesn't really work that way. You need to be a bit lenient with yourself on that sort of thing. Well, that's great. Thanks James for your time. No, thank you.